Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. So good to have you with me. Tonight's author is Mary Chevalita Bright, who wrote under the name of George Edgerton. She was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1859 to a Welsh mother and an Irish father. She travelled widely, but her formative years were spent in Dublin, Ireland, and for the rest of her life she described herself as intensely Irish. Widely considered one of the most important of the new woman writers of the 19th century fin de siècle, she was a friend of George Bernard Shaw, Ellen Terry, and J. M. Barrie. Her stories are noted for their psychological probing and their outspokenness about women's need for freedom, including sexual freedom. Her stylistic innovations and experiments with narrative form had an influence on such writers as James Joyce and D. H. Lawrence, which those authors were happy to acknowledge. Tonight's story comes from her first book, Keynotes, published in 1893. It is called A Little Gray Glove. The book of life begins with a man and a woman in a garden and ends with revelations. Oscar Wilde Yes, most fellows' book of life may be said to begin at the chapter where woman comes in. Mine did. She came in years ago, when I was a raw undergraduate. With the sober thought of retrospective analysis, I may say she was not all my fancy painted her. Indeed, now that I come to think of it, there was no fancy about the vermil of her cheeks, rather an artificial reality. She had her bower in the bar of the Golden Boar, and I was madly in love with her, seriously intent on lawful wedlock. Luckily for me, she threw me over for a neighboring pork butcher, but at the time I took it hardly, and it made me sex-shy. I was a very poor man in those days. One feels one's griefs more keenly then. One hasn't the wherewithal to buy distraction. Besides, ladies snubbed me, rather, on the rare occasions I met them. Later I fell in for a legacy, the forerunner of several. Indeed, I may say I am beastly rich. My tastes are simple, too, and I haven't any poor relations. I believe they are of great assistance in getting rid of superfluous capital. Wish I had some. It was after the legacy that women discovered my attractions. They found that there was something superb in my plainness, before they said ugliness, something after the style of the late Victor Emmanuel, something infinitely more striking than mere ordinary beauty. At least so Harding told me his sister said, and she had the reputation of being a clever girl. Being an only child, I never had the opportunity other fellows had of studying the undressed side of women through familiar intercourse, say with sisters. Their most ordinary belongings were sacred to me. I had, I used to be told, ridiculous high-flown notions about them. By the way, I modified those considerably on closer acquaintance. I ought to study them, nothing like a woman for developing a fellow. So I laid in a stock of books in different languages, mostly novels, in which women played title roles in order to get up some definite data before venturing amongst them. I can't say I derived much benefit from this course. There seemed to be as great a diversity of opinion about the female species as, let us say, about the Salmonidae. My friend Ponsonby Smith, 
who was one of the oldest fly-fishers in the Three Kingdoms, said to me once, "'Take my word for it. There are only four true salmo—the salar, the truta, the fario, the ferox. All the rest are just varieties, subgenuses of the above. Stick to that.' Some writing-fellow divided all the women into goodens and badens. But as a conscientious stickler for truth, I must say that, both in trout as in women, I have found myself faced with most puzzling varieties that were a tantalizing blending of several qualities. I then resolved to study them on my own account. I pursued the eternal feminine in a spirit of purely scientific investigation. I knew you'd laugh skeptically at that, but it's a fact. I was impartial in my selection of subjects for observation—French, German, Spanish, as well as the home product. Nothing in petticoats escaped me. I devoted myself to the freshest ingenue, as well as the experienced widow of three departed, and I may as well confess that the more I saw of her, the less I understood her. But I think they understood me. They refused to take me au sérieux. When they weren't fleecing me, they were interested in the state of my soul. I preferred the former. But all humbugged me equally, so I gave them up. I took to rod and gun instead, pro salute animae, it's decidedly safer. I have scoured every country in the globe. Indeed, I can say I have shot and fished in woods and waters where no other white man, perhaps, ever dropped a beast or played a fish before. There is no life like the life of a free wanderer, and no lore like the lore one gleans in the great book of nature." but one must have freed one's spirit from the taint of the town before one can even read the alphabet of its mystical meaning. What has this to do with the glove? True, not much, and yet it has a connection. It accounts for me. Well, for ten years I have followed the impulses of the wandering spirit that dwells in me. I have seen the sun rise in Finland and gild the devil's knuckles as he sank behind the Droxenberg. I have caught the barba and the gaming yellowfish in the Val River, taken muscalunge and black bass in Canada, thrown a fly over the Guapote and Cavallo in Central American lakes, and choked the monster eels of the Mauritius with a cunningly faked-up duckling. But I have been shy as a chub at the shadow of a woman." Well, it happened last year I came back on business, another confounded legacy. End of June, too, just as I was off to Finland. But Messrs. Thimble and Rigg, the highly respectable firm who look after my affairs, represented that I owed it to others, whom I kept out of their share of the legacy, to stay near town till affairs were wound up. They told me, with a view to reconcile me perhaps, of a trout stream with a decent inn near it, an unknown stream in Kent. It seems a junior member of the firm is an angler. At least he sometimes catches pike or perch in the medway some way from the stream where the trout rise in audacious security from artificial lures. I stipulated for a clerk to come down with any papers to be signed and started at once for Victoria. I declined to tell the name of my find, firstly because the trout are the gamest little fish that ever rose to a fly and run to a good two pounds, secondly 
I have paid for all the rooms in the inn for the next year, and I want it to myself. The glove is lying on the table next me as I write. If it isn't in my breast pocket or under my pillow, it is in some place where I can see it. It has a delicate gray body, suede, I think they call it, with a whipping of silver round the top, and a darker gray silk tag to fasten it. It is marked five and three quarters inside, and it has a delicious scent about it, to keep off moths, I suppose. Naphthalene is better. It reminds me of a silver sedge tied on a ten hook. I startled the good landlady of the little inn, there is no village, fortunately, when I arrived with the only porter of the tiny station laden with traps. She hesitated about a private sitting-room, but eventually we compromised matters, as I was willing to share it with the other visitor. I got into knickerbockers at once, collared a boy to get me worms and minnow for the morrow, and, as I felt too lazy to unpack tackle, just sat in the shiny armchair made comfortable by the successive sitting of former occupants at the open window, and looked out. The river, not the trout stream, winds to the right, and the trees cast trembling shadows into its clear depths. The red tiles of a farm roof show between the beaches and break the monotony of the blue sky background. A dusty wagoner is slaking his thirst with a tankard of ale. I am conscious of the strange, lonely feeling that a visit to England always gives me. Away in strange lands, even in solitary places, one doesn't feel it somehow. One is filled with the hunter's lust, bent on a kill. But at home, in the quiet country, with the smoke curling up from some fireside, the mowers busy laying the hay in swaths, the children tumbling under the trees in the orchards, and a girl singing as she spreads the clothes on a sweetbriar hedge, amidst a scene quick with home sights and sounds, a strange lack creeps in, and makes itself felt in a dull, aching way. Oddly enough, too, I had a sense of uneasiness, a something going to happen. I had often experienced it when out alone in a great forest, or on an unknown lake, and it always meant where danger of some kind. But why should I feel it here? Yet I did, and I couldn't shake it off. I took to examining the room. It was a commonplace one of the usual type, but there was a work-basket on the table, a dainty thing lined with blue satin. There was a bit of lace stretched over shiny blue linen, with the needle sticking in it, such fairy work, like cobwebs seen from below, spun from a branch against a background of sky. A gold thimble, too, with initials, not the landlady's, I know. What pretty things, too, in the basket! A scissors, a capital shape for fly-making, a little file, and some floss silk and tinsel, the identical color I want for a new fly I have in my head, one that will be a demon to kill. The northern devil, I mean to call him. Someone looks in behind me, and a light step passes upstairs. I drop the basket, I don't know why. There are some reviews near it. I take one up, and am soon buried in an article on Tasmanian fauna. It is strange, but whenever I do know anything about a subject, I always find these writing fellows either entirely ignorant or damned wrong. After supper I took a stroll to see the river. 
It was a silver-gray evening, with just the last lemon and pink streaks of the sunset staining the sky. There had been a shower, and somehow the smell of dust after rain, mingled with the mignonette in the garden, brought back vanished scenes of small boyhood when I caught minnows in a bottle and dreamt of a shilling rod as happiness unattainable. I turned aside from the road in accordance with directions and walked toward the stream. Hello! Someone before me! What a bore! The angler is hidden by an elder bush, but I can see the fly drop delicately, artistically on the water. Fishing upstream, too. There is a bit of broken water there, and the midges dance in myriads. A silver gleam, and the line spins out, and the fly falls just in the right place. It is growing dusk, but the fellow is an adept at quick, fine casting. I wonder what fly he has on. Why, he's going to try downstream now? I hurry forward, and as I hear him, I swerve to the left out of the way. A sudden sting in the lobe of my ear. Hey, I cry as I find I am caught. The tail fly is fast in it. A slight, gray-clad woman holding the rod lays it carefully down and comes towards me through the gathering dusk. My first impulse is to snap the gut and take to my heels, but I am held by something less tangible but far more powerful than the grip of the limerick hook in my ear. "'I'm very sorry,' she says in a voice that matched the evening. It was so quiet and soft, but it was exceedingly stupid of you to come behind like that. "'I I didn't think you threw such a long line. I thought I was safe,' I stammered. "'Hold this,' she says, giving me a diminutive fly-book out of which she has taken a scissors. I obey meekly. She snips the gut. "'Have you a sharp knife?' If I strip the hook, you can push it through. It is lucky it isn't in the cartilage. I suppose I am an awful idiot, but I only handed her the knife, and she proceeded as calmly as if stripping a hook in a man's ear were an everyday occurrence. Her gown is of some soft gray stuff, and her gray leather belt is silver-clasped. Her hands are soft and cool and steady, but there is a rarely disturbing thrill in their gentle touch. The thought flashed through my mind that I had just missed that, a woman's voluntary tender touch, not a paid caress, all my life. Now you can push it through yourself. I hope it won't hurt much. Taking the hook, I push it through, and a drop of blood follows it. Oh, she cries, but I assure her it is nothing, and stick the hook surreptitiously in my coat sleeve. Then we both laugh and I look at her for the first time. She has a very white forehead, with little tendrils of hair blowing around it under her gray cap. Her eyes are gray. I didn't see that then. I only saw they were steady, smiling eyes that matched her mouth. Such a mouth! The most maddening mouth a man ever longed to kiss, above a two-pointed chin, soft as a child's. Indeed, the whole face looks soft in the misty light. "'I'm sorry I spoiled your sport,' I say. "'Oh, that doesn't matter. It's time to stop. I got two brace, one a beauty.' She is winding in her line, and I look in her basket. They are beauties, one two-pounder, 
the rest running from a half to a pound. What fly? Yellow Dunn took that one, but your assailant was a partridge spider. I sling her basket over my shoulder, she takes it as a matter of course, and we retrace our steps. I feel curiously happy as we walk towards the road. There is a novel delight in her nearness. The feel of woman works subtly and strangely in me. The rustle of her skirt as it brushes the black heads in the meadow grass, and the delicate perfume, partly violets, partly herself, that comes to me with each of her movements is a rare pleasure. I am hardly surprised when she turns into the garden of the inn. I think I knew from the first that she would. Better bathe that ear of yours and put a few drops of carbolic in the water. She takes the basket, as she says it, and goes into the kitchen. I hurry over this and go into the little sitting-room. There is a tray with a glass of milk and some oaten cakes upon the table. I'm too disturbed to sit down. I stand at the window and watch the bats flitter in the gathering moonlight and listen with quivering nerves for her step. Perhaps she will send for the tray and not come after all. What a fool I am to be disturbed by a grey-clad witch with a tantalizing mouth. That comes of loafing about doing nothing. I mentally darn the old fool who saved her money instead of spending it. Why the devil should I be bothered? I don't want it anyhow. She comes in as I fume, and I forget everything at her entrance. I push the armchair towards the table, and she sinks quietly into it, pulling the tray nearer. She has a wedding ring on, but somehow it never strikes me to wonder if she is married, or a widow, or who she may be. I am content to watch her break her biscuits. She has the prettiest hands, and a trick of separating her last fingers when she takes hold of anything. They remind me of white orchids I saw somewhere. She led me to talk, about Africa, I think. I liked to watch her eyes glow deeply in the shadow, and then catch light as she bent forward to say something in her quick, responsive way. "'Long ago, when I was a girl,' she said once, "'Long ago?' I echo incredulously. "'Surely not!' "'Ha-ha, but yes, you haven't seen me in the daylight,' with a soft little laugh. "'Do you know what the gypsies say? "'Never judge a woman or a ribbon by candlelight. "'They might have said moonlight equally well.' "'She rises as she speaks, "'and I feel an overpowering wish to have her put out her hand. "'But she does not. "'She only takes the work-basket and a book "'and says good-night with an inclination of her little head.' I go over and stand next to her chair. I don't like to sit in it, but I like to put my hand where her head leant, and fancy, if she were there, how she would look up. I woke the next morning with a curious sense of pleasurable excitement. I whistled from very lightness of heart as I dressed. When I got down, I found the landlady clearing away her breakfast things. I felt disappointed and resolved to be down earlier in the future. I didn't feel inclined to try the minnow. I put them in a tub in the yard and tried to read and listen for her step. I dined alone. The day dragged terribly. I did not like to ask about her. I had a notion she might not like it. I spent the evening on the river. I might have filled a good basket, but I let the beggars rest. After all, I had caught fish enough to stock all the rivers in Great Britain." But there are other things than trout in the world. 
I sit and smoke a pipe, for she caught me last night. If I half-close my eyes, I can see hers and her mouth in the smoke. That is one of the curious charms of Baki. It helps to reproduce brain pictures. After a bit, I think, perhaps she has left. I get quite feverish at the thought and hasten back. I must ask. I look up at the window as I pass. There is surely a gleam of white. I throw down my traps and hasten up. She is leaning with her arms on the window ledge, staring out into the gloom. I could swear I caught a suppressed sob as I entered. I cough, and she turns quickly and bows slightly. A bonnet and gloves and lace affair and a lot of papers are lying on the table. I am awfully afraid she is going. I say, "'Please don't let me drive you away. It is so early yet. I have expected to see you on the river.' "'Nothing so pleasant. I've been up in town.' The tears have certainly got into her voice. "'All day. It was so hot and dusty. I'm tired out.' The little servant brings in the lamp and a tray with a bottle of lemonade. "'Mr. Sassanetti Lemons, Mum. Will this do?' "'Yes,' she says wearily. She is shading her eyes with her hand. "'Anything. I'm fearfully thirsty.' Let me concoct you a drink instead. I have lemons and ice and things. My man sent me down supplies today. I leave him in town. I am rather a dab at drinks. I learned it from the Yankees. About the only thing I did learn from them I care to remember. Susan! The little maid helps me to get the materials, and she watches me quietly. When I give it to her, she takes it with a smile. She has been crying. That is an ample thank you. She looks quite old. Something more than tiredness called up those lines in her face. Well, ten days passed. Sometimes we met at breakfast, sometimes at supper, sometimes we fished together, or sat in the straggling orchard and talked. She neither avoided me nor sought me. She is the most charming mixture of child and woman I ever met. She is a dual creature." Now I never met that in a man. When she is here without getting a letter in the morning or going to town, she seems like a girl. She runs about in her gray gown and little cap and laughs, and seems to throw off all thought like an irresponsible child. She is eager to fish or pick gooseberries and eat them daintily, or sit under the trees and talk. But when she goes to town— I notice she always goes when she gets a lawyer's letter, there's no mistaking the envelope. She comes home tired and haggard-looking, an old woman of thirty-five. I wonder why. It takes her, even with her elasticity of temperament, nearly a day to get young again. I hate her to go to town. It is extraordinary how I miss her. I can't recall when she is absent her saying anything very wonderful but she converses all the time. She has a gracious way of filling the place with herself. There's an entertaining quality in her very presence. We had one rainy afternoon. She tied me some flies. I shan't use any of them. I watched the lights in her hair as she moved. It is quite golden in some places, and she has a tiny mole near her left ear and another on her left wrist. On the eleventh day she got a letter— but she didn't go to town. 
she stayed up in her room all day. Twenty times I felt inclined to send her a line, but I had no excuse. I heard the landlady say as I passed the kitchen window, "'Poor dear, I'm sorry to lose her.' "'Lose her? I should think not. It has come to this with me that I don't care to face any future without her. And yet I know nothing about her, not even if she is a free woman.' I shall find that out the next time I see her. In the evening I catch a glimpse of her gown in the orchard, and I follow her. We sit down near the river. Her left hand is lying gloveless next to me in the grass. Do you think, from what you have seen of me, that I would ask a question out of any mere impertinent curiosity? She starts. No, I do not. I take up her hand and touch the ring. Tell me, does this bind you to anyone? I am conscious of a buzzing in my ears, and a dancing blur of water and sky and trees as I wait, it seems to me, an hour for her reply. I felt the same sensation once before, when I got drawn into some rapids and had an awfully narrow shave, but of that another time. The voice is shaking. I am not legally bound to anyone, at least. But why do you ask? She looks me square in the face as she speaks, with a touch of haughtiness I never saw in her before. Perhaps the great relief I feel, the sense of joy at knowing she is free, speaks out of my face, for hers flushes, and she drops her eyes, her lips tremble. I don't look at her again, but I can see her all the same." After a while she says, "'I half intended to tell you something about myself this evening. Now I must. Let us go in. I shall come down to the sitting-room after your supper.' She takes a long look at the river and the inn, as if fixing the place in her memory. It strikes me with a chill that there is a good-bye in her gaze. Her eyes rest on me a moment as they come back. There is a sad look in their grey clearness.' She swings her little grey gloves in her hands as we walk back. I can hear her walking up and down overhead. How tired she will be, and how slowly the time goes. I'm standing at one side of the window when she enters. She stands at the other, leaning her head against the shutter with her hands clasped before her. I can hear my own heart beating, and I fancy hers through the stillness. The suspense is fearful— at length she says, "'You have been a long time out of England. You don't read the papers?' "'No.' A pause. I believe my heart is beating inside my head. "'You asked me if I was a free woman. I don't pretend to misunderstand why you asked me. I am not a beautiful woman. I never was. But there must be something about me. There is in some women.' essential femininity, perhaps, that appeals to all men. What I read in your eyes I have seen in many men's before, but before God I never tried to rouse it. Today—with a sob—I can say I am free. Yesterday morning I could not. Yesterday my husband gained his case and divorced me. She closes her eyes— and draws in her underlip to stop its quivering. I want to take her in my arms, but I am afraid to. 
I did not ask you any more than if you were free. No, but I am afraid you don't quite take in the meaning. I did not divorce my husband. He divorced me. He got a decree nisi. Do you understand now? She is speaking with difficulty. Do you know what that implies? I can't stand her face any longer. I take her hands. They are icy cold and hold them tightly. Yes, I know what it implies. That is, I know the legal and social conclusion to be drawn from it, if that is what you mean. But I never asked you for that information. I have nothing to do with your past. You did not exist for me before the day we met on the river. I take you from that day, and I ask you to marry me. I feel her tremble, and her hands get suddenly warm. She turns her head and looks at me long and searchingly. Then she says, Sit down. I want to say something. I obey, and she comes and stands next to the chair. I can't help it. I reach up my arm, but she puts it gently down. No, you must listen without touching me. I shall go back to the window. I don't want to influence you a bit by any personal magnetism I possess. I want you to listen. I have told you he divorced me. The correspondent was an old friend, a friend of my childhood. He died just after the first application was made, luckily for me. He would have considered my honor before my happiness. I did not defend the case. It wasn't likely. Ah, if you knew all. He proved his case, given clever counsel, willing witnesses to whom you make it worthwhile, and no defense. Divorce is always attainable, even in England. But remember, I figure as an adulteress in every English-speaking paper. If you buy last week's evening papers—do you remember the day I was in town? I nod. You will see a sketch of me in that day's. Someone, perhaps he, must have given it. It was from an old photograph. I bought one at Victoria as I came out. <laughs> it is funny to buy a caricature of one's own poor face at a news stall. Yet in spite of that I have felt glad. The point for you is that I made no defense to the world, and, with a lifting of her head, I will make no apology, no explanation, no denial to you, now nor never. I am very desolate, and your attention came very warm to me, but I don't love you. Perhaps I could learn to, with a rush of color, for what you have said tonight, and it is because of that I tell you to weigh what this means. Later, when your care for me will grow into habit, you may chafe at my past. It is from that I would save you. I hold out my hands, and she comes and puts them aside, and takes me by the beard and turns up my face and scans it earnestly. She must have been deceived a good deal. I let her do as she pleases. It is the wisest way with women, and it is good to have her touch me in that way. She seems satisfied. She stands leaning against the arm of the chair and says, I must learn first to think of myself as a free woman again. It almost seems wrong today to talk like this. Can you understand that feeling? I nod assent. Next time I must be sure, and you must be sure. 
She lays her fingers on my mouth as I am about to protest. Shh! You shall have a year to think. If you repeat then what you have said today, I shall give you your answer. You must not try to find me. I have money. If I am living, I will come here to you. If I am dead, you will be told of it. In the year between, I shall look upon myself as belonging to you, and render an account, if you wish, of every hour. You will not be influenced by me in any way, and you will be able to reason it out calmly. If you think better of it, don't come. I feel there should be no use trying to move her. I simply kiss her hands and say, As you will, dear woman, I shall be here. We don't say any more. She sits down on a footstool with her head against my knee, and I just smooth it. When the clock strikes ten through the house, she rises, and I stand up. I see that she has been crying quietly. Poor lonely little soul! I lift her off her feet and kiss her, and stammer out my sorrow at losing her, and she is gone. Next morning the little maid brought me an envelope from the lady, who left by the first train. It held a little gray glove. That is why I carry it always, and why I haunt the inn, and never leave it for longer than a week, why I sit and dream in the old chair that has a ghost of her presence always, dream of the spring to come with the mayfly on the wing, and the young summer when midges dance, and the trout are growing fastidious, when she will come to me across the meadow grass through the silver haze as she did before, come with her gray eyes shining to exchange herself for her little gray glove. You've been listening to A Little Gray Glove by George Edgerton. Ahead of her own time, she has been rediscovered and widely discussed in our own. Often quoted are her epigrammatic words, A lady decidedly, fast, perhaps, original, undoubtedly, worth knowing, rather. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, all the best. Thank you.